what happens. So good evening to you all. I think at, at this part, point I've met most of you and the folks I haven't uh, checked in with uh, I'll be seeing uh, tomorrow. So here we are up here at the Forest Refuge up in Snowland. I guess the roofing has stopped for the moment. Although the roof repairs, who knows, they may be needed soon. There's a lot of snow up there. But a very good time for practice. Turning our mind towards the cultivation of uh, the heart and of wisdom. And tonight I'd like to talk about a particular aspect of Dharma related to what's called investigation. This is a very interesting feature of Buddhist practice, this particular quality. So everyone who who is here has been practicing for a while and you probably feel like you've got a decent or at least basic understanding of what mindfulness is, I'm assuming. If that's not the case, that's okay too. So when we talk about mindfulness, we we use, uh, or sati, we use words that are uh, often um, pointing to particular qualities this has. So we talk about present tense. It's a present tense kind of awareness. It's receptive. It's connected. It's allowing. It's... Um, non-preferring mindfulness. It's um, sensory rather than thinking about, although we can experience thoughts in a mindful kind of way as they're arising too, but it's uh, a kind of fundamental or a kind of basic presence that allows us to know our immediate experience in a way that's unmediated by conceptual proliferation. So that's probably a decent working definition of it. A lot more can be added, of course. There's whole books. And mindfulness, of course, is the first of what are called the seven factors of awakening. And these are particular aspects of mind that can be developed, which when they are opened, and they're generally opened in some kind of sequence, although it's not linear, it's more of a spiral kind of thing. But when these seven factors of mind are opened, they leave the mind malleable and balanced, capable of seeing deeply into things, steady, calm, alert, the perfect tool for seeing clearly into the nature of reality and coming to an understanding of how the mind can liberate itself. So mindfulness is the first of these factors and is always a wholesome quality. It's the only one of the seven factors of awakening that's always wholesome. If it's unwholesome, it's not mindfulness. But the second factor of awakening is what I really want to focus this talk on, which is the factor of investigation, also called Dhammavi Kaya. And this follows very closely upon mindfulness and works very intimately with it to strengthen it. And the relationship between these two factors are very much reciprocally reinforcing. And coming to an understanding of investigation is really important in coming to an understanding of what we're actually doing when we're establishing mindfulness in relationship to 
what we're knowing in the present. So this quality of investigation is very important because it really turns the mind in the direction of the cultivation of discernment. Wisdom in being able to see what is appropriate in terms of what we are knowing to be able to figure out what is actually skillful in relationship to our immediate experience. So I'm going to talk about this quality um, generally and then I'm going to go through some practice scenarios of a practical nature where I talk about particular common kinds of experiences people have on the cushion and what it actually means to apply this quality of investigation to those kinds of experiences. So we could say in a certain kind of way that the liberation of the body-mind system comes about when the body-mind as a whole system starts to become transparent to its own workings. So that's a mouthful. I mean, what does that that mean? The body-mind system actually starts to become transparent to its own workings. What I mean is when we can establish a flow of continuous awareness which registers and connects in a wise kind of way with our predominant experience in a sustained and ongoing way. And that's not the way we usually experience things, right? I mean, we have moments when uh, we're aware, there's some awareness going on. We have moments when we're mindful. And then we have whole periods of time where we're kind of out to lunch where there's some sort of stem awareness there in that, you know, we're not walking into walls or uh, not that often anyway, or, you know, falling over ourselves walking. But if we were going to ask the question, you know, is there clear awareness of what's happening right now? Or is there mindfulness established in relationship to the experience? We have to say, probably not. And of course, part of the experience when we, when we come to practice is when we sit down and actually try to attend in an ongoing way to what's present, we start to realize how many gaps there are. How, many, how often there's a complete lack of connection with any kind of predominant experience. And this is, you know, part of the uh, early humiliation of learning how to meditate. Early, medium, and long-term humiliation of learning how to meditate as you realize, oh my God, you know, I'm just like not really there most of the time. So in order for us to really develop this quality of discernment which allows us to harmonize with our experience moment by moment, i.e. to have a non-suffering relationship to our experience moment by moment, we have to first of all make that experience visible. Meaning we have to establish mindfulness in relationship to it. And then we need to stay there and keep observing over time. And that's the view or that's the seat where from which we start to be able to see what happens when we we relate to things in uh, way A and what happens when we relate to things in way B. A relationship model A being through uh, greed, hatred, or delusion. Relationship model B being through... uh, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, or in other words, with mindfulness. And the wisdom that, and discernment that 
arises out of that sustained seeing largely comes about through strengthening the mind's capacity for investigation. So once the system starts to recognize what it can change about immediate experience, what it can't change about immediate experience, and what it takes to harmonize with immediate experience. It's really opened the door to its own liberation. It's established this kind of self-transparency that I referred to earlier. We're seeing what the workings are. We're starting to realize when effort is made in this particular kind of way, this is what happens. Oh, no effort is required here. Oh, this is... This is uh, Um, this is the way to hold this, this is the way to consider this, this is the way to perceive this, this is the kind of mind to bring to this situation, this is where letting go is called for, this is where effort is called for, this is where uh, equanimity um, uh, can be brought forward. This is a wholesome quality of mind. This can be attended to in this way and it will strengthen. This is an unskillful quality of mind. Uh, This can be let go of. Don't want to relate to this in a way that actually strengthens it. And investigation is the process through which we learn how to make those particular kinds of discernments. And I'm uh, describing this in a way that might lead you to think that this this is like a thinking kind of thing. You know, we think our way through these kinds of things. Certainly, the intellect is part of this process. But we're turning much more towards experiential knowledge than we are towards an attempt to think it through. Although reason is good not to denigrate it in any kind of way or intellectual or book understanding at all. But to really get down to the experiential level, it's mindfulness and it's investigation in tandem. So investigation is what happens when mindfulness actually connects with phenomena. And when the object is then illuminated by mindfulness, investigation encourages us us and allows us to perceive it more specifically. So this quality is sometimes uh, talked about in terms of investigation of states. So that can be states of mind, states of uh, the body, states of um, the different senses states of uh, the expression of Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And it occurs uh, very much at this baseline, immediate, present tense level of the body-mind system and in an ongoing and continuous way when it's functioning well. So the mind here is then turning towards its own workings. And when I say the mind, I mean everything that's contained within the mind or arises in association with the mind. So everything in the four foundations of mindfulness, which means mindfulness of the body and the the senses, mindfulness of Vedana, that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, mindfulness of the mind, mind states, thoughts, uh, emotions, and mindfulness of dhammas, mindfulness of the map itself, of uh, what's a hindrance, what's a factor of awakening, you know, that kind of knowledge as well. So the map is part of this, knowing the map, recognizing where things are on the map when they're being experienced, what they are within that kind of framework. But there's a definite turning of the mind towards curious, further looking at what's present in the immediate sense. So if we were going to say, 
what kind of questions an investigative mind asks. Here's some examples of things. When investigation is functioning, what is this experience? You know, like what's there right on the top, what's predominant? So this can be like a name that object kind of question. What is this experience? What's the Vedana, meaning the feeling tone of this? Uh, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither pleasant nor unpleasant? What does this feel like in the body, this state? What, what are the sensations? You know, are they gross? Are they subtle? Is it just like this subtle contraction in the system? Is it like some kind of energy of excitement? What is it? Is there a hindrance present? If so, what one or which ones? And what do they feel like? Okay, is it anger? This strong physical energy that's happening in the body and this fire in the mind? Is it anger? And what does it feel like? When you turn to that anger and you actually are present with it, what is it? Is it heat? Is it tightening? Is it clenching? Is it grinding? Is it the urge to get up and do something? Is it, what's it feel like? Is it a wholesome state? Which one? What does that feel like in the body? What does metta feel like in the body when you recognize its presence in the mind? What is its Vedana? Is it pleasant? As you observe it, what happens to it? Does it strengthen? Does it go away? Does it turn into equanimity? Does the mind start thinking about, oh, this is metta, this is really good. You know, this is really good, this is really good, I should do some more of this. What's the attitude of the mind towards the experience? This is a particular question that's asked very often in the Utejaniya style of practice. What's the attitude of mind towards this experience? Which is another way of saying, is it really mindfulness that's present with this experience? Or or is there a hindrance there that's actually relating to this experience? As this experience is known, does it change? Hint, hint. <laughs> yes, it will. Maybe not immediately and maybe not obviously, but yes, it will, it will change. This is the truth of impermanence that you're being pointed towards. Does it change? Okay, so it do, does change at some point. So in what way? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it turn into something else? Does it pass away completely? So these are the kind of questions that are part of investigation. And you can see how this functions to reinforce mindfulness, right? So mindfulness is there, it's present with it. Investigation comes, always wise investigation, with, with the establishment of mindfulness. But it's in an interesting kind of way, because you have to have the object there. You have to have it in sight, right, in, a, in your experience in order to be able to investigate it. But it, it's an interesting thing that in a certain kind of way, wise investigation can also summon mindfulness, right? So I, I was saying earlier, you know, we can have a kind of awareness with things without it necessarily being mindfulness, right? We can sort of know something or know something through the lens of a hindrance, where it's actually not being experienced mindfully. But when we ask the system to actually do some investigation, to actually look into the specifics of it, we're turning the mind to actually be willing and able to recognize, acknowledge, and register the specifics of what it is. So a mind that's actually recognizing, allowing, and registering the specifics of something, uh, dropping its preference for things to be a certain way, is a mind that has moved into a mindful relationship with experience. 
Can you see that? Right? If you're investigating it, you're in a skillfully you're in a mindful relationship with the experience. So have you noticed that it's common in interviews, or at least it's common in interviews with some teachers, to be asked about the specifics of what's being known. Ever notice that? At least some teachers, you go into an interview with them, and, and, and they say, oh, tell me about you know, what you're noticing. That's usually the way I'll try to put it to people. Tell me about what you're noticing. Which is a little different than the question of how are you doing, although I'd like to know that. Or are you, how's it, how are you doing? Are you, is it good? Is, are you doing it good? That's not what's being asked in interviews. Are you doing it good? Are you doing it right? That's not what be, what's being asked. Okay. So it, it's not a situation where you're actually... Uh, being given uh, an exam in interviews. You're just being encouraged to say what you're noticing about what is experienced. So you could consider this whole process as a sort of uh, two-person investigation. So the teacher might say, say back to you, uh, something like, you'll, you'll say, well, I came in, it's just been a mess, you know, my mind's been all over the place, I can't really f- focus on anything. So the teacher might say, oh, so what was that? Was that like restlessness or was that worry or, you know, was it just high, ener- high energy? What did it feel like in your body? You know, was that, was that pleasant or was that unpleasant? So what did your mind do with that when, you know, it was like that? So it's an iterative process, right? So basically, part of what's happening in interviews besides uh, general support and contextualization is you're, you're kind of being given... Uh, prompting investigative questions <laughs> to help you move the mind into this framework of looking into in this very neutral, curious, interested way into what you're actually experiencing. So, you know, some styles of teaching Vipassana are, have very strict and formal ways of asking you to report. That's the way they would put it, report. So I want you to, for instance, the instruction might be, I want you to go and do, you know, focus on the breath at your nostrils and come back and tell me, you know, what you noticed about that experience. And then when you notice that about that experience, what happened after you noticed that? And then what happened after that? And tell me very specifically about that one thing. What they're really doing is they're uh, trying to encourage the student to look closely in this particular kind of way. Closely enough so that they're clearly connecting with their experience. Enough to be able to say it back from that direct space of direct knowing. So that's part of what's going on in the interviews. So there's a big coaching piece of that that happens in interviews. So investigation always uh, answers the questions, what's happening and how is it happening? How are you knowing it? Specifically, how do you know it? So if you're angry, how do you know you're angry? What leads you to, what set of sensations or experiences leads you to label it as that versus high energy or feelings of heat? What, what is it that makes it that in your knowing? in particular. 
So you're being asked to, to allow those specific features to register so that you can know. So you see the overall process here is to encourage the mind into a more open and curious and interested receptive connection with what's arising and passing away within its mind stream. Not looking for any right answers, but just on the simplest level looking for what the direct experience actually is. How you actually know it. And you may know it clearly, you may know it vaguely, you may know the experience of not being sure what it is. And that's fine too because that's an experience. That's the experience of not being sure or being confused or uh, being discouraged or being upset. These are all equally valid and useful experiences in this process of the establishment of mindfulness and the investigation of states. Because we all have a huge range of psycho-physical emotional states. There's a really, really, really big range of things that we can experience in our body and mind. And the direction of this practice is to bring us into sustained, and because it's sustained, deepening connection with our being so that more and more of these experiences become conscious and become known and can be penetrated with uh, the wisdom of the Dharma Uh, with the end being the purification of the mind, the purification of our view and our uh, deepening understanding of how things actually exist and how they work together and how suffering is created and how we personally can move beyond the suffering that's caused by the ignorance or the delusion of disconnection. But it's a process because we have these little islands of awareness where you know we're present and there's some mindfulness and then you know a, a lot of ocean around it where that's not so present but it's kind of like we're uh, developing the capacity to actually begin to penetrate those those places or those islands of uh, disconnection of unconsciousness of resistance of closure and inviting them into our uh, field of awareness. So this investigation is actually how discernment is developed. If you remember the story of the Buddha, you probably know that at least on the mythological level. He had many previous lifetimes where he did spiritual practice and in particular he practiced sila. He practiced non-harming and working for the benefit of all beings. So he practiced sila, which is part of our path, the precepts, generosity, altruistic action, that. And then in the life that he was a Buddha as well as in other lives, He practiced concentration, development of the capacity of mind for uh, one-pointedness of of going to uh, one channel of experience and staying there and penetrating that particular place very deeply of silencing the mind, silencing the body, calming the emotions. He mastered all those things. But after having done those two things, there was still some, something that wasn't in place. And when he looked at it honestly, he realized that he still hadn't come to the end of suffering. And then he kind of went, took all the skills, all the wholesome uh, energies that he had gathered through his previous um, work He gathered those things and he kind of went back to scratch. He kind of went back to the, well, then what's actually happening here? (laughs) And went back to this very basic, mindful observation of the body and mind as a process. 
And it was through that that he developed the discernment to realize how things work together, how things condition each other. And an appreciation of what the wise relationship is with things. Which things are to be cultivated, which things are to be let go of, how you actually do that cultivation, how things influence each other. He went so far as to actually do this thought sorting experiment that must have taken an incredible amount of concentration and renunciation. He said he was going to sit down, he was going to watch all of his thoughts, and he was going to sort them. He was going to sort them into two piles, and one pile was going to be thoughts that were of, for the benefit and well-being of himself or others, and then the other pile would be thoughts that were to the detriment <laughs> of himself and others, our suffering end of, the, of it. And he was going to discern which were which, which kinds were which, and he was going to abandon the ones that were to the detriment of himself and others, and he was going to choose to intentionally cultivate the ones that were wholesome. That's what I'd call really getting down to baseline observation. Fortunately for us, he's done the sorting. We can certainly sort in our own way as well, and we do, and this is part of our own experiment, but a lot of the work has been done, which is the reason that this is a a path. So if you're going to consider the Eightfold Path, you could say it's actually uh, the Buddha's description of how to deconstruct suffering. He understood the suffering that human beings have, how it was rooted, how it came to be, what it's bound up in, and then said, okay, well, if we're going to This is how it's made. If we're going to reverse engineer this, if we're going to take it apart, how would we go about taking it apart? Oh, okay. Eightfold Path. Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. That's the model. So what we do in meditation is actually apply a particular way of relating to present tense experience. The way that the Buddha figured out was skillful. And he says often, you know, this is the way to regard this. And then I'll have some description. Don't think of it like that, especially in uh, relationship to self-models. Don't think of it like that. You'll get all screwed up if you think of it like that. Don't think of it like that. Understand it like this. This perception is, or way of going about it is useful, and this one is really going to get you all messed up. So we run the experiment for ourselves in our own uh, practice. And we start to learn how, when we're able to relate to things with presence and wisdom, and mindfulness, and, and when we're not. What happens when those wholesome qualities are offline? And we start to be able to recognize which is which, and what to do about it when they're offline, and how to support and reinforce when wholesome qualities are there. And the application of mindfulness alone is very much part of it because it basically weakens the unwholesome states and is intrinsically supportive of the wholesome ones, which is why it's such a core core quality in Buddhist practice and thought. So with continued close connection with this body-mind process, the system starts to learn how to create a virtuous cycle 
where the mind is increasingly open, connected, and equanimous with whatever it's experiencing. So it increases its range of what it can connect to and hold. So when you get meditation instructions, you're on retreat or you're listening to a tape or something, or you're getting meditation instructions from a teacher in an interview, they're basically coaching you on how to relate to what you're experiencing. Oh, look at it this way, relate to it this way. Oh, if it's like this, then you can relate, relate to it like that. So those are some general comments about the process of opening and the role of investigation and what it is. And now I'd like to talk about some particular common things that can come up. First, a couple things that are um, just kind of uh, easily observable, most of us would recognize. And then maybe a couple things that are a little bit more hidden or uncommon or subtle scenarios that are harder, harder to spot and how you might go about investigating these particular kinds of things. So applied investigation in relationship to some imaginary yet not unrealistic scenarios. So here's some particular scenarios. So, here, so here's one. You're trying to focus on the breath in order to be calm. The mind keeps leaving the breath and going to thinking. So you yank it back, but it soon returns to thinking. Does this sound like a familiar scenario? Has anyone experienced this? Okay. So if we, one way you could uh, see investigation at work in that kind of scenario might be to answer some questions along this line. When you realize the mind has wandered from the chosen object, what mental state is present there? In other words, in other words when you realize you've been gone, when you f- first return, like what's the mental state there? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it chagrin? Is it amusement? What is it? What's happening right then when awareness returns? What's it feel like in the body? So in other words, investigate the present state right there before you try to go back to the breath. Because you know what happens when you try to go back to the breath and you haven't really landed on the present state? You usually go back to the breath or attempt to go back to the breath with a big hindrance right there. (laughs) Right? Right there in the lens of the knowing. So you could ask yourself, uh, if there's a strong emotional state present there, say you're like really, really annoyed at this point of the way the mind keeps slipping off into thinking, there will be body sensations that are present. Strong emotional states have body correlates. So what body sensations are those? When you feel annoyance, what is it exactly in the body? You know, where is it in the body? How is it in the body? Are these sensations pleasant or unpleasant? Or are they neither pleasant nor unpleasant? As you feel these sensations, do they get weaker? Do they get stronger? Do they change to something else? Do they pass away? So that's an example of how you can investigate it. Okay, here's another example, same scenario. So I said it was, you're trying to attend to the breath to get calm but the mind keeps leaving the breath and going to thinking. You yank it back, but it soon returns to thinking. Common thing, right? So when you become aware that you're lost in thinking, investigate the kind of thinking that's taking place. 
Thought can be an, a meditation object, you know. You don't have to completely get rid of, rid of thinking in order to meditate. You don't want to get caught up in discursive thinking of uh, indeterminate length. <clears throat> That's not what I'm saying. But certainly to have mindfulness of thoughts is a very useful thing, don't you think? <laughs> Because we have so many of them, so it's really a good place to practice. But if you've been lost repeatedly in thinking, you could investigate what kind of thinking is it. So is it planning? Is it uh, fantasizing? Is it obsessing? Is it worrying? What is it? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Is there an emotion bound up with thoughts? Often lots of thoughts along the same line do have some emotion going with them too. And it's actually the emotion that's powering the thinking. So it can be very useful to identify what that emotion is and then feel it in the body. And to feel the sensations in the body. So another question would be, well, what's the attitude of mind towards the experience? Is there clinging there? Is there aversion towards it? Is there self-judgment? Is there a view that this is an illegitimate experience, that it shouldn't be happening? Or some kind of idea that you should be able to control things? That's a real, th- those are really interesting ones to look at. The it shouldn't be happening thought and the I should be able to thought Two blinking red lights <laughs> that let you know that you have now fallen out of uh, mindful contact with what you're experiencing. That there's actually a great big hindrance or two or three or four or five right in the middle of it. Okay, here's another scenario. Let's take uh, painful sensations in the knees. This has been known to happen as well. So there are painful sensation in the knees. You start to worry that if this doesn't go away, you won't be able to practice. Then your plans for the retreat will be ruined and your money wasted. Panic arises at the thought of failing. Does this sound familiar? Okay. Okay, how you would investigate this. Here's a, a version of this. You notice painful sensations in the knees. There's a predominant physical sensation. That's right there on top of the pile. You soften around the pain, and with goodwill and care towards yourself, you explore exactly what the sensations are. Ooh, this is the part that is counterintuitive about Buddhism, right? that in the meditative process we don't immediately go to trying to excise unpleasant or painful experience, right? Because that's the mental impulse, right? It's like, I've got to get rid of this. This is wrong. This is going in the wrong direction. Instead, we do something different with it. We turn in an investigative way towards it and experience Explore the sensations. What are they? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it throbbing? Is it needle-like? Does it have a center? Does it have an edge? As you attend to this pain, is there fear or aggression in the mind towards the experience? In other words, is there aversion present there? Is there a view you need to conquer this or to uh, gut it out in order to succeed? Do you think you need to like overcome it? As you explore this experience of pain, does it change, get stronger, get weaker? So then other questions you could investigate. Is the attention being given still mindfulness receptive and interested or is there a kind of resistance to this so then you can allow yourself to redirect attention to something else 
or to move and stay with it, the noticing and the process of making the adjustment before things become (laughs) unbearable or damaging. So when you do that, what changes in the physical sensations? What changes in the mind? Do you feel a sense of relief? Ah, the end of suffering. Or maybe it doesn't quite end. Maybe it's still uncomfortable. This has been known to happen too. So there's a whole art around working with pain and uh, investigating pain, investigating difficult states. That's a whole series of several talks probably, but you know, this is just kind of like a basic scenario to give the idea. So here, here's an investigation version two. Same precipitating circumstance. So you've got the painful sensations in the knees. You start to worry that if this doesn't go away, you won't be able to practice. Your plans for the retreat will be ruined and your money wasted. Panic arises at the thought of failing. There are painful sensations in the knees. You move in reaction when pain arises at the thought of failure. Then you notice there's still some aching in the knees, but it's lessened. You feel embarrassed you moved and self-judge as being a wimp. So to investigate this, you would feel the body sensations of embarrassment, recognize them as that, and investigate them with mindfulness. So... Maybe there's heat spreading to the face. Heat, heat. And there's recognition of the state of embarrassment and its unpleasantness. Embarrassment, embarrassment, unpleasantness, unpleasantness. Then the heat starts to subside and changes from an unpleasant sensation to something more neutral. As the knee sensations change, you notice pain is passing away. Then you investigate the feeling of relief and realize the relief is both physical and mental. Then you notice the arising in the mind of the desire that this be gone for good. Good. It better be gone for good. I want it to be gone for good. You recognize this as desire, which isn't a hindrance if there is a mindful relationship with it. And you know you have a mindful relationship with it when the mind is capable of investigate, acceptance of its presence and investigation of it. Right? Then it's just another meditation object. So you see in those examples, the relationship to what we're experiencing experiencing is investigative when there's mindfulness present and it recognizes what is happening as it happens and the mind turns towards what's happening with an interest in discerning what unfolds as it has experienced. So it stays in the present tense. The mind stays in the present tense and allows the object of awareness to change as it's going to but stays with it. So the mind isn't trying to do anything about or to or with what's known in order to secure a preferred version, right? You're letting it do its its thing, but you're staying with it. So this way of attending is intimate, connected, allowing, And it doesn't have any kind of agenda in relationship to this thing except to learn how to be wise and skillful in relationship to what's experienced, right? Or there can be an agenda there. You see the agenda. You see it's arising. You take that as the object of awareness. And you're mindfully present with that. So it, so it isn't about what you're ex- experiencing, it's about how you are connecting and relating to it. Okay, a couple more experiences.
These are a little bit more subtle, but they're pretty common too. Um, feeling bored. Has anybody had that experience on retreat, feeling bored? No? Too much dukkha to be bored? Wishing it was just boredom? <laughs> Being beyond boredom? Beyond boredom. Uh, sounds like a good tombstone <laughs> inscription. <laughs> beyond boredom. So this is an interesting one. So nothing's happening. This is a scenario. I'm so bored. My practice has been the same for 20 years. Nothing's improving. So boredom is a very interesting state, actually. Because it's kind of... uh, not interested mind, isn't it? In a certain kind of way. It's just, I'm not interested in this. It's just, it's just not worthy of my, <laughs> my uh, connection. It doesn't have within it uh, what I need or what I want or what is of interest. This is a very... Uh, let, let me see if there can be something more worthy or more seemingly onward leading that I can attend to now. So you could say it's a state that arises when there's a lack of connection and satisfaction with available objects. So this discontent can be investigated a hindrance as a hindrance. It also can be the threshold of an insight, even major insights. This experience of kind of, there's nothing to it. There's nothing there. There's nothing, there's no lovely, chewy, gooey (laughs) center (laughs) to things. So there's actually, Three different scenarios under which boredom tends to arise. So, if you're going to investigate, and I'll talk more about those because they're they're worthy of being teased apart because they're three quite different quite different things. But so, if you're going to in, boredom is present. The interesting move is instead of looking around for something that's going to catch your interest, catch your mind, is to actually investigate boredom. To actually turn towards the state and see what is it? What is it actually? So which hindrance is most predominant would be a good question. So is it wanting, meaning wanting something different, or is it aversion, meaning this isn't good enough? Uh, Brush it aside. Is there a self-view present? And what is the Vedana of that self-view? That's kind of an interesting one with boredom. Is the self-view pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Is there like a sense of, I need something more than this? Or, I'm not getting any place with this? Which is, is there doubt there? Is there sloth and torpor? Is there restlessness and worry? Now, what are the body sensations of boredom? As you hear the word boredom, Turn your mind internally and imagine what those sensations are. Bored. It's kind of slumpy and a little bit pouty, isn't it? There's a little bit of pouty slump to it. So as you investigate boredom, what happens to it? Does it go away? Does it strengthen? Does it turn into something else? 
And what is the energy level in the body and what kind of energy is there when there's boredom? In the mind, what's the attitude of the mind towards this process of meditation, towards the environment around you, towards reality? Are you just kind of sick of it? Sick of looking for something? Or sick of not getting something? Is there a lack of satisfaction in the objects being known? Do you experience the beginning, middle, or end of objects when they arise? Can you tell? Do you want things to be different? Do you want something more to be present than there actually is? This is really um, an interesting state to work with in meditation because it's uh, the door to a number of different things. So I said there's three different versions of this that I've noticed. So version one is where there isn't mindfulness, so the attention isn't being given to anything. It's just kind of a disconnection. So there are other hindrances present in this particular case. So, you know, the cure for this is to apply more attention to summon energy and to apply more attention. It's an interesting thing that things become interesting when we're interested in them. And we have this idea that things are intrinsically interesting or they're not intrinsically interesting, but it's actually not like that. And you've probably all had experiences in your own meditative uh, period where you're attending to something that's just a very simple thing and in no way exceptional or remarkable except for the moment at least, it's just like very, very real and very, very interesting. That's an effect of the quality of presence uh, you have in the moment and not intrinsic to that particular uh, piece of toast. <laughs> right? That's what your mind is doing. It's not, it's not about the toast. It's about what the mind is. So there's a certain kind of way when we're present with things that we've experienced many, 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 many different times, whether it's the breath or, or any other thing, that we can become uh, habituated to it uh, and want something more, something different. So an interesting thing about that is that um, new things open when familiar and common things are fully experienced. Fully experienced. That's when new things open. When familiar and common things are fully experienced. That's when the mind can descend. So another place where boredom can easily arise is when the Vedana or the feeling tone of the experience is what's sometimes called neutral but more accurately called neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's, it's kind of like lukewarm water, you know? It's not hot, it's not cold, it's not pleasant, strongly pleasant, it's not strongly unpleasant. The mind doesn't go into reactivity for or against it as easily when the Vedana is in this more neutral zone, but it more easily disconnects from it. More easily disconnects from the experience, either out of worry about uh, you know, something bad that might happen or out of opportunistic seeking for something pleasant that might be available instead of this kind of neutral experience. It's more subtle. We have to train the mind to attend in this neutral zone instead of going for the drama. (laughs) Going for the drama, going for some kind of big or easily observable or new or uh, novel experience. 
So this is an important crossover point in practice when the mind starts to learn how to attend in this zone because it really opens the door to calm and to equanimity and it fills out the palette. Remember earlier I was talking about this process being about the mind becoming transparent to its own workings, right? It's workings of the body and the mind. Well, there's this whole neutral zone that we often just kind of brush aside or don't even perceive we disconnect from very easily. That is part of the texture, part of the warp and woof of what's there for us to be known. So if we can learn to recognize this and actually be present to it, giving it equal dignity to things that are more dramatic or which cause more uh, reaction, it's an important piece. So the developmental piece of this in the practice is um, we learn here how to direct awareness rather than wait for interest. (laughs) We learn how to become interested, become connected, become willing to actually experience this. And then the third place where the mind starts to often experiences boredom or something like boredom is when it starts to realize that there's nothing inherently satisfying about any of the conditioned things that it's knowing. Starts to realize like there's no big payoff in getting this rather than that or having this happen or having this pleasant or getting the, you know, the chocolate, it starts to realize that, ah, it doesn't do it. This is part of the the process of the system becoming disenchanted with uh, its tendency to fixate on any part of the flow starts to realize that it's, nah, you know, even if you get that, it's really not going to do it. And it goes through this process of disillusionment and discouragement and a little bit of depression. And, you know, when it gets in there deep, it can kind of get an attitude of, well, screw it all. And so, so what's the cure for that? Attention to the attitude of mind, the screw it all. (laughs) That's a state. That's a state to be investigated. Just continue on with the process. You'll be relieved to know that this is not the end point of practice. (laughs) I'm not letting you leave here until you're all completely disillusioned. You say, screw it to everything. (laughs) You can't leave until you get there. But, you know, this is part of what the, the Buddha talks about when he, when he talks about the limitations of enchantment with impermanent things. This is part of what we're seeing. The impermanence of things and how there, there isn't, we can't by grasping any, or manufacturing any particular kind of experience find a permanent, lasting happiness and satisfaction within it. It just isn't there. It can't be done. So when we let go of that uh, approach of the gaining mind and move into a more equanimous uh, relationship with what we experience, paradoxically, that's when the dukkha starts to dry up. But we only do that when we've exhausted every other possibility. So... But anyway, that's boredom can come up as part of that process of disenchantment. So that's probably about enough to cover tonight. I'll just say in conclusion that um, 
in order for us to wake up and to actually liberate our minds from what we might call discretionary human suffering, we need to learn discernment. In other words, we need to learn the wise way to relate to what we're experiencing. So if you were going to learn how to harmonize, how would you go about doing that? Let's just take it in a literal kind of way, you know, singing. So if you're going to learn how to harmonize, first you would need to listen. You would need to listen carefully to what is being sounded, the tone. And then you would try to sound back, relate back in a particular way that's in relationship to what you're hearing. And you would listen again. You would listen to what that sounded like then. What, what it was like when you sang, ah, instead of ah, you know? Which worked? Where is the harmony to be found? And you would notice again, and then you would adjust. And you would try again. And then you would listen again, and then you would adjust. And this, this is very much what this process is. We're learning to listen closely, connect closely to what our immediate experience is in an ongoing way, and starting to recognize when we're our way of being present with it, of being with it, of perceiving it, is in tune, and, what, and when it's out of tune, and we start to be able to hear the difference or feel the difference when it's out of tune and to make the adjustments to bring the system into a wiser, more beautiful relationship with actu- what's actually present. So it's experiential at its, at its base and all the way through. So that's some things about investigation and what it is and how it functions and how you do it and how you can apply it and common scenarios and all the rest of it. So um, this is your own investigation, right? This is your own investigation of state. So I hope you have a good opportunity to do this for yourself. Do your own exploration. This, This is your own harmony you're creating. So you're the one that has to do the listening and you're the one that needs to do the sounding and the listening again and all the adjusting. And uh, I'll be very interested to hear from you what's, what that's like when we meet again. <clears throat> so let's do the <clears throat> reflection on the sharing of blessings together.